to a day full of hearsay. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Mm -hmm. And then cheers. To a day full of hearsay. I like that. Good one, D. There was a lot of hearsay. And that's an interesting subject that's difficult to explain, I think. What is hearsay and what's its role in evidence? Uh, Well, the simplest explanation for hearsay, and I say simplest because it's not that simple, is when somebody repeats something that they heard somebody else say in court. And for the truth of the contents. What they heard was at a court. It's an at a court statement. Right. So person A is testifying. Person A says that he heard person B say X. And if that's for the truth of the contents, meaning it's true what person B was actually saying, uh, that's hearsay and that offends a fundamental rule in law. And the rule being that hearsay evidence is not admissible at trial because of the inherent problems with statements of people who are out from out of court and not testifying. And this is important because this type of admission of evidence can lead down the road for a wrongful conviction. And we'll get there. But first, we have to explain the basis of this. Amusingly, actually, a lot of people would have heard this because in Johnny Depp's trial, there was a really funny moment where he started to answer a question but he was asked to answer that question about um, arrangements for a birthday party, or whatever. So he started to say, and then she said that she wanted blah, blah for dinner. And then he stopped himself and says, oh, I guess that's hearsay. I'm and learning. It, <laughs> and, then, and then he stopped at one point and goes, I was waiting for the objection because that might be hearsay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hearsay is a rule to exclude evidence of somebody who would not necessarily be a witness in the trial, but the evidence may be deemed relevant by let's say the prosecution who wanted it in, but it's excluded for good reason, but there are exceptions. And and the law used to be fairly stringent about the admission of hearsay until a short while ago. Well, the early yeah. 2000s. I... Yeah, well, to me, that's a short while ago. Yeah. <laughs> in this book on the law of evidence and which evidence is permissible and isn't, the, there's a, a chapter on hearsay that starts at uh, page 135 and continues for a fairly lengthy section because it is complicated. It goes to, to page 232. This is The Law of Evidence by Justice Pachoco. Again, I can't help smiling every time I say his name. I love this guy. The way he writes is so clear. His writing is so effective. Yes. So um, like there's a lot of factors to it, and there's but there's also exceptions. There's a lot of exceptions. Um, there are a lot of complicated exceptions, which we won't get into, like the co-conspirators exception to the hearsay rule, yeah. which is always a great one. <laughs> That's painful. Right. But, you know, we want to try and make it as simple as possible to explain how, within the context of our podcast, how these things can lead to, you know, improper or unsafe convictions. So I, I guess the, the point, the starting off point to understand is the way that we test evidence is to be able to not only hear from the person who's declaring it, but also cross-examine them. And the main problem with hearsay is that the person who actually says it is not in court to be cross-examined, to be challenged. And so there's a concern about the reliability or the accuracy of the statement. 
So that's the underlying reason why you start out with kind of this blanket prohibition. And then from there, however, because we have the system of the common law, when those concerns of reliability um, and accuracy aren't there, the common law has developed over, you know, centuries, specific exceptions. Then, uh, starting in the 2000s, the Supreme Court kind of started to open up um, and try to get rid of specific exceptions and come with what's called the principal approach. Explain that for one second, and then I want to talk about a specific exception, which played some mischief in a murder case recently, which I think may change sort of the land, you know, sort of the land about how we deal with hearsay. But so it, it used to be that. <coughs> There were these, you know, we call them exceptions, and the court referred to them as, as pigeonholes. And if whatever piece of evidence you were trying to put fit in a pigeonhole, the trial courts would just say, oh, it's in that pigeonhole, fine. You know, it's admissible. You can argue weight later on. You can argue weight later on. Or permissible uses. And Well, that's a little different. Um, but... But starting in the 2000s, the Supreme Court said we should get back to understanding why it is the you know why we're afraid of hearsay, and thinking about other instances in which that fear doesn't exist, and as a result of that fear not existing, we should broaden the the types of evidence or situations or circumstances in which he, the, the evidence will be heard. And so get away from this, this pigeonhole and start doing an analysis and thinking about it, judges, uh, and counsel, and so on and so forth. So, and this is where they came up with the principled basis in which to assess whether hearsay I, evidence is right. admissible. When I normally hear it come out in court where they sort of stop them and say, we only want to hear what, what you observed yourself right. or whatever, it's usually because they're asked, well, how did you know that? Oh, because, you know, I was talking to so-and-so and they told me, you know, whatever. So that's exactly why we don't want that kind of evidence because they don't actually know it. They only know what they were told. Right. And, and, and it can get more pernicious than that. So let's talk about two exceptions. So we actually hone in on something. One of them is let's say you have a complainant testify, so a live complainant as opposed to some of these cases which are murders, a live complainant uh, has given evidence. And then you call a witness who was in contact with that complainant and you could slip in every so often statements made by the complainant to that other witness, which would then be a prior consistent statement. Should not be allowed except in certain circumstances. And that can get very difficult. So. We've mentioned prior consistent statements before and then just said we're not going to get into that because it's so complicated. But but generally it, it should not be allowed unless there's unless there's certain things being argued. What's more pernicious in my opinion right now is an expansion of admissions by the accused. So this is a party admission liability exception. We should explain it a bit. But this is when an accused is alleged to have said something incriminating to a witness or to a complainant or to someone else. Could be in a murder case, could be in a sexual assault case or whatever. And that becomes very pernicious because somebody can just make shit up and say, this is what the accused yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, they said they murdered somebody or they sexually assaulted somebody and they really enjoyed it. And in some instances, no matter how 
implausible or without context that admission may seem, it's in evidence. Right. So, so I know what you're laughing actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had an implausible one yeah. recently. So this this exception is, you know, one of the oldest exceptions to the hearsay rule. And it's premised on the theory that, um, the old common law theory, that the accused can't complain about the inaccuracy of their own statement. But of course, <laughs> that's premised on the theory that they actually said it and right. that it's being recounted accurately. Uh, but forget that because you know the you know that ship has sailed uh, and it's an admiss it's just the fundamental rule that anybody can stand up and say the accused told me X and that is admissible no matter how absurd no matter how absurd um, or absent of context exactly which is the key decision we're going to discuss today which is the absence of context in the recent so let's frame it and then i'll shut up for a bit and you guys can can chat about it a bit but so this is a case from supreme court of canada on a murder case that's recently uh, released in october of this year where an individual was convicted of second degree murder and um i believe it's the brother of the accused um allegedly overheard a conversation between the accused and his wife and that conversation was sought to be evidence. In other words, the Crown wanted the brother to testify about what the accused said to the wife in, in circumstances where there was really no reliability or an ability to assess relevance, but it was admitted at trial, person was convicted, went to the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal said, no, 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 no. This was inadmissible. Well, two to one. Two to one. And then it went to the Supreme Court of Canada where they restored the conviction and there was a dissent. We need to explain this because the dissent here is very well worded and this shows how sometimes this type of hearsay can be incredibly unreliable and lead to mischief in a jury assessing a verdict as in as important as a murder case. Well, so, the, the frailties of the evidence too include that, that he said he was actively trying not to listen to the conversation. Yeah, so let's talk about this. So, let's, so, let's, so yeah. The, let's lay it out. The, fa know. the facts in this case are, are very important. So. You know, this woman, uh, her body is discovered. The police put out, uh, you know, news saying, can you, we have a photo of a suspect. Does anybody recognize? Can you help? And the uh, brother of the accused in this case uh, sees the photo, says, oh, I think that's my brother. Calls his brother to say, I just saw a photo, you know, uh, of you. And the brother hangs up. And doesn't want to talk about it. Hangs up, you know. So the brother of the accused goes to his house to say, uh, look, what's going on? And the accused makes a number of uh, statements that are somewhat incriminating. The uh, accused, the next day, says he wants to commit suicide. He wants to OD. Um, you know, and he wants his brother to come with him when he dies. Brother agrees. They go, you know, he scores some heroin, he sh shoots up, uh, but doesn't die, you know, manages to, to, to survive it. At this point, this is the key critical. So the guys come out of his drug-induced haze. Um, he asked to borrow his brother's phone. And uh, the accused calls his wife. 
the accused is maybe 10, 15 feet away. The brother is trying not to listen in. The brother hears a few words, one of which is, I killed her, um, or I did it. When we get to trial, the brother can say, you know, I, I don't remember the actual words. I can remember the gist of it. You know, it was kind of a traumatic situation. And I, of course, don't know what she was saying or anybody else or the rest of the conversation. So, historically, there was another decision by the Supreme Court um, in Ferris in which a police officer overheard an accused on the phone say, I killed her. Uh, and the Crown attempted to adduce that evidence. And the Supreme Court said, well, you don't know the context. What he was asked or what was being said by the other person right before that statement. Right, because for all we know, you know, think about it. For all we know, the other person on the other line is saying, why are you, you know, what do the police think you did? Why are you in custody? Right. Right? I killed her. Right? That's what they think. So... The Supreme Court in this case decided to, I wouldn't say overturn, but yeah, pretty much. They overturned the Court of Appeal. Uh, well, no, no, the, their own their own kind of findings and historically in terms of yeah. the, the principle behind, look, if you're going to adduce the statement of the accused. Is that what they say in the dissent, that they pretty much overturned a, another principle? No, they, they, I haven't the, read the dissent's the very strong in saying that there was... It was extreme. The relevance was speculative, but I, just go on a little bit further because this this is really interesting, and and you get it's an interesting set of facts, and so we haven't spoken much about murder cases, and and I think this is really interesting. A murder trial, first of all, is always going to be a jury, okay, with very rare exceptions, and whenever there's a rule of evidence and it's a jury, the court is really you know, really concerned with the prejudicial effect of certain pieces of evidence and whether the prejudicial effect outweighs the probative value. And one of the areas in which, you know, it's just universally recognized is <laughs> confessions by accused. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to uh, unring that bell once a jury hears that. And so there's always been a very you know, tightly controlled to make sure that when what is effectively a confession will be heard by a jury, right? That the rules of evidence really follow through, you know, to a T. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, in the dissent in this case is saying, look, um, <laughs> you know, I don't understand how with knowing all of the facts of this case, how you can say that the only or the most logical inference uh, was that he was referring to, you know, that it was a con confession, right? Knowing all of the different avenues and, and, and potentials for what those statements were and the massive prejudicial effect that that would have on a jury if you were permitted. And, you know, that's... The and reliability was an issue, right? 
Well, well, it was all about reliability. Yeah. There was no issue about credibility because, again, when you're looking at witnesses, there are two different elements. One is credibility. Are they lying purposefully? The other is reliability. Are they able to narrate their observations accurately? And were they in a position to make an accurate observation? Right. It's an so, excellent question. So just, just as an aside, so there's generally a three-pronged test to the admission of this evidence, but the third prong, which you were just talking about, prejudice versus probative. So is this really relevant? Is it highly relevant? Is it really going to help a jury? Or how damaging can it be to a proper assessment of the facts? That's prejudice, right? So can right. it screw up a jury to think about that's not relevant and make an improper finding. And 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 the of course you'll never see that said in a case, but and the, when we talk about the prejudicial effect, we're not talking about just because it's damning evidence. Damning evidence goes in. Yeah, it is evidence that might be misused, and that's that's it, the that's issue. why it's more concerning with the jury because judges are are more educated and, and observant of the uses that some evidence can be put to. It doesn't change the fact that it, whether it should be admitted or not, whether it's judge alone or a jury, it shouldn't be whether a judge is in a better position to assess it. It's whether it can be misused by a judge or a jury. Right. But you get reasons from a judge that's as well. The main, yeah. That's the main, that's... So you can scrutinize it more. Exactly. So you can see the analysis because juries, it's a yes, no. You don't know their logic. You don't know if they've misused anything. In a judge's decision, you can actually, you know, generally tell whether how they used that evidence, how it impacted them, and whether they misused it. So, you know, the way the court puts it is the weighing has been referred to as a cost-benefit analysis. Probative value relates to the degree of relevance to trial issues and the strength of inferences that can be drawn. So, how relevant is it and how strong is it to draw an inference that this person was making an admission that they killed the person. Prejudicial effect relates to the likelihood that a jury will misuse the evidence. And I think what really is important here is to talk about what the dissent said and why this evidence was horrifically prejudicial, um, flawed, and can definitely be misused by a jury and nobody will really know how they used it in this case. Right. So, and this is when you were talking about, you know, both of you were talking about what this guy was trying to convey that he was like, I was only half listening, maybe. Well, he actually testified to the exact opposite. I was trying not to listen. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, that's somewhat problematic uh, because the whole point is that you can take whatever words you hear out of context. And the. The, the problem with the majority's analysis, which the dissent really notes, which is when you're looking to determine context, you have to look kind of at the conversation itself and not everything else, like not other pieces of evidence that are external to that. Because the whole point is the, the person who's receiving that information and who is filtering it because in this case the guy was saying the brother was saying this is the gist that i understood and if it's the gist that you understand you know just basic elementary uh, logic it's filtered through your own view of what information you have what's going on and so on and so forth 
So, so let's just for a second, just and, and Diana, you know, y you have a lot more training now in law than you ever did. So, but you're you're still in a position to assess it like a normal person, not like Chris and I. But so this was a witness, the, the brother who said, "I was trying not to listen. I wasn't that close and distance from where he was talking to his wife. I only heard." certain words of which I cannot remember the actual words used. I can only tell you the gist of it. And I don't know what she, the other part of the conversation. The thing that keeps going through my head is like, I keep thinking of that childhood game telephone where you, somebody says something and then you have to turn and repeat it to somebody else. And by the time it gets like even five or six people away, it's completely distorted. That's the thing that keeps going through my head right. when I'm hearing this, because um, if he's actively trying not to listen to it, my thought is that he could have completely misheard what was being said as well. So if you were in a jury, how would you be able to assess whether it re is really relevant or if this is just speculation? And was the, was the jury influenced by other facts in the case to then assign meaning to these words? And mistakes can be made in terms of allowing certain evidence to be heard. And then there's corrective instructions that can be given. So sometimes even though the courts of appeal find that there was a mistake. If the judge goes, you heard some evidence from the brother about such and such, and they remind them about the instability or you know unreliability issues uh, with that evidence, that can be seen as being sufficient enough to correct the well, error. It's it's funny you say that because of course you know the the Supreme Court mentions this and uh, makes reference to its own decision last year. And which basically says, look, uh, a great, you know, if there's any error, the jury hears uh, evidence that it shouldn't have, don't worry, provided the judge tells them, don't rely upon that, it's great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that makes me laugh um, because, you know, just naturally I know that in Canada we can't, interview juries there's no real analysis of what actually goes on uh, behind the scenes and how much they actually listen to the judge and the last week my mother spent three days at the superior court on a jury panel potential jury panel and they got a you know a bunch of of uh, you know explanations this is what the case is about don't talk about it so on and so forth and she said as soon as you go back into the jury pool everybody's breaking the rule <laughs> she says everybody is talking about it and you know oh well my experience this was a drive-by shooting was was the case you know at hand and she's saying everybody's talking to her about the case you know well I, and and giving experiences that they and you sit there and say these are people before they've been picked you know on uh, a panel on a panel all right you know theoretically maybe once they've sworn they you know now follow the rules it's hard to imagine and of course you, you know, can't unhear things either. we have this fiction and that the court you know uses um that everybody follows the rules which of course if that was the case it's hard to imagine that there'd be ever uh you know crime first of all to perjury uh you know or anything of that nature but apparently um you know, uh, the Supreme Court says everybody follows the rules. And it's not to say we, we, we've we agreed, you know, we all like jury trials and we think juries do a good good job. I don't like jury trials now. I'm terrified to think yeah. about how it's going to be with, with 
the inability to help select a jury, but we'll leave that aside. But I just want to say something and impose a very controversial question, okay? So just to reiterate and be Controversy, no. Because we don't, we don't talk about anything controversial on this podcast. So on the evidence, this is the dissent. On the evidence before the jury, it was impossible to know what the accused said to his wife during the overheard phone call. The brother did not know the words that he heard. He was deliberately trying not to listen. He neither participated in the conversation nor heard both sides of it. He acknowledged that he did not know what was said or recalled the substance of what was said. Assessing the relevance of the accused brother's testimony is therefore an exercise in pure speculation. While while context beyond the immediate conversation can inform the meaning of statements made within the conversation, in this case, the contextual features beyond the conversation relied upon were irrelevant and insufficient context arising from the conversation itself. And basically what they're saying is the jury could have misused this evidence and assigned probative value to it when it couldn't have. So just give me one second. I'm going to say something and ask a question. The dissent's right. 100%. I quite often agree. Because this was so bad. The evidence was so frail and so unnecessary in a general scheme of the other other evidence that was available. And what was at risk here was, God forbid, if they would have concluded as a majority that this was misused by the jury, they'd revert it back to a new trial. Not that there would be an acquittal, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. So are we looking at some decisions now that may or may not be compromised by our Supreme Court because of public opinion? I think they're very influenced by you know maintaining public uh, approval of the court system and the public generally doesn't like to see a murder conviction overturned or sexual assault convictions I mean are we seeing a trend with all due respect to the Supreme Court that we respect you know where there are very accomplished individuals public faith in the legal system is important but not so important that you can compromise the fairness of trials again we talked about a maxim it's it's better that 12 guilty persons go free than one innocent person, 9, 20, 40, whatever, um, then one gets convicted. Mm-hmm. How do we come up with 9 versus 1? But anyways. I think he just wanted to take 10 and, and split it down. I like 12. A- in any event, the, the concept is it's better that we err on the caution side than err on the side of wrongful convictions. And I'm worried... It's not an agreement to let nine guilty people go. Like, we've said that before. Yeah, that's know, not what I it like is. To it's say just that every time that we have principles and we have evidence and we have rules of a fair trial. So it's just interesting, you know, because we, 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 we haven't spoken a lot about murder cases, which we defend. We talk a lot about sexual assault cases. We've spoken a, a lot about these appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada, which have been rejected in well, this, sexual this assault cases. This was a murder case, but the decision about that kind of hearsay will apply to all cases. Well, yeah. exactly. It will apply to all cases, yeah. which is an excellent point, Diana. But does it also fit in with a pattern that we're seeing where there might be this overarching fear of the public losing confidence in the justice system or we don't want to go against you know, public opinion about people who should not be freed or found guilty because of some technicality? Like, you know, I'm concerned about this now influencing the decisions of the Supreme Court. I'm not. I'm not sure you can make that broad of a. Um, you certainly couldn't do it on JJ, which 
found constitutional in horrible regime that can lead to wrongful convictions. But let's talk about this one. Right. No, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the uh, willingness of the court to strike down sentencing law. So, you know, they certainly have been willing to strike down mandatory minimum sentences for a host of offenses. Once we find them guilty. That's a bit of a, yeah. Like, you know, is it, is it that we're going to, is it that we're going to be a little too conservative, too harsh and, and f around a little bit with the rules of evidence here um, so that convictions are increased, but we're going give to a, give a bit of a, a benefit on, on the sentencing side. Like, you know, what side of the ledger are we on? I'd rather that they be, you know, that sentence that, you know, when somebody is properly convicted beyond a reasonable doubt on sound evidence with a sound foundation, that a proper sentence is granted. Yeah, well, what makes it sound though? So, uh, this like is about a year ago, I, I actually, this is one of my first encounters with Justice Pachoco, was I, I was researching prior consistent statements, which can sometimes be hearsay and the exceptions. And, and there's this thing of like there being a living tree and we have to sort of move forward as we come across cases with unique circumstances, we can broaden the exceptions or whatever. And so then he said, really, the, where, the position we were in now is that you should expect for things to be allowed into court and then just focus on arguing the uses it can be put to and how much weight can be put on it. But he was saying fighting and trying to keep stuff out of court is getting, you know, they're expanding the exceptions. That's absolutely true. Um, more and more. And so just go in there being prepared for the evidence to be allowed. And there's a few uses it can be put to, which you guys can explain. <laughs> or, I, I've got my notes here still. So something can be used as pure narrative, right? That's it. It's just for narrative purposes. Right. Well, that's, you know. And that's on the Crown side. On the Crown side. Well, no, it's 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 also the defense. You know, if no, we don't, we're not allowed anything now. No, no, no. If if no. A, if a person says, for example, uh, you I know, was in a relationship with the person who's accusing me of sexual assault. That's not allowed. Mm -hmm. Well, let's well put, look, why did you do why did you do dead. something? Why did you do something? Because if it goes because, to their own motives yeah. and their own manner of thinking at the time, then I don't think that's there's a I, narrative I, purpose. I think there's a strangulation of the accused ability to provide a narrative and a coherent story about why. There's a strangulation to the loosening of what is allowed by the Crown. There is a, there is a different system in place for prosecution evidence and defense evidence. Well, I, I'm I, sorry, I, I see that. I agree, I agree with you on that point, but you know, getting to the pure narrative point, one of the exceptions, for example, is if somebody, you know, says, you know, why did you go to the third floor? Oh, because uh, Dave told me, uh, you know, that's where the party was. Now, the the thing is, when you're saying it's it's admissible, it's not admissible um, because that's the that's the difference is, which is very hard to understand. But the point which of is why hearsay. We haven't got into this in the past before. Right. So it is the hard to the point of hearsay, if it's actual hearsay, is you can that's admissible. It means that the jury, the trier fact, can rely upon that statement as truth. All right. If it's a statement that's made not for the purposes of its truth, truth of its so contents, truth of its contents. For example, you know why you did X, Y, or Z. You know, whether Dave told you the party's on the third floor or not, 
that's that that issue is uh, that fact is not proven in any way shape or form mm -hmm. so it's actually it's technically not hearsay because it's not admitted for the truth of its contents. It's admitted just to the state of mind of the person who's receiving it. Why did you do something? Right. But it can be, so they have narrative as circumstantial evidence. And that's different. So that's the prosecution yeah, that's calling narrative evidence that can be used as circumstantial evidence to bolster the credibility of a complainant. And that is dangerous. Which often takes the form of just demeanor. So the fact that they said something they, they're saying tends to show that they were in a state of distress or something because... It, it, no, it, you know, it, it's, it goes way beyond demeanor. Right. Because demeanor actually has, with all due respect, better qualifications and assessment than it does other evidence. So there can be other inadmissible evidence that's hearsay, but it goes to narrative, which then can be used to support. And I can't think of an example right now. We see it in domestic and sexual assault cases, but that's very, that's very dangerous types of evidence that, that can and does get admitted. Yeah, and that's and, I, and it's I been cautioned by most, Justice Pachaco. I think that's the most complicated and convoluted area of the use of hearsay. Yeah, but but the concept of this is, and 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 you know, again, I've apologized a few times. We're over technical here, but. But again, we're, we're talking about, you know, sort of the dangers. Well, even if people don't understand everything we're saying, at least it gives them an idea of how complicated it is. Because we have people coming in here all the time saying, oh, I've got tons of evidence. And pretty much everything they start telling us about is hearsay. Right. And we, and you know, and, and we, we, go, we, we bend over backwards to explain, for good reason, why this isn't admissible. And to be very careful about what we seek to admit at trial is actually admissible evidence that is probative and 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 not in any way runs afoul of the rules. I mean, right. we're meticulous about this. Whereas I I truly feel, with all due respect, that that we're seeing a loosening as to what's admissible for prosecution evidence. And I guess I'm jaded because of this the Supreme Court of Canada decision. I know I'm going back to sex assaults, but this regime where now we have to vet everything by the defense, mm -hmm. uh, by a judge to ask f***ing context questions. And, and we, we talked about it on this last episode, and actually there was a comment about um, when we were talking about our applications, whether, you know, a, a lawyer should have phrased it in a certain way. Or, uh, this is not a defense problem in a sense of this is, a, this is a bad piece of legislation that's been rubber stamped by the government. The defense should never be in a position of having to put forward its entire case in great detail. And I'm just seeing with... This is another decision where, although in this case, it might not have made a difference in this murder case. But again, I, I see it as sort of stepping over backwards to allow in or, or rubber stamp certain evidence that should have never been in because it's speculative, it's prejudicial, it's not helpful, it can be misused by a jury. But are we doing this to pander to public opinion? That's, you know, that maybe is more relevant to our, our viewers. But, but I, also, I think there's an to issue to be clear, there. too, that just somebody saying something, because we get a lot of the time as well, it's like, well, how is there even a case? It's just what, what the complainant says, yeah. right? That there's is no, not hearsay. No, no, it's evidence. not hearsay. Because they're giving evidence under oath in court, and hearsay is out of court statements. Whatever a, per, yeah. whatever a complainant's experience is with the accused, that's direct evidence. That's their observations and words spoken to them. That's direct evidence. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is extraneous evidence that's now getting in through loopholes, like it's narrative and, and it's circumstantial evidence to support 
the complaints version of events, or in this case, some f***ing conversation that the person didn't want to hear, tried not to hear, can't really tell you what was said, didn't hear the full conversation, so there's no context to it and it gets admitted because, God forbid, we should send this murder case back for a retrial. Yeah. And but that, in conjunction with other stuff that we're seeing, I'm worried about that we're leaning towards public opinion. But but there are some legitimate exceptions. So, uh, for example, rebuttal, yeah. right? And one of Absolutely, these would be yeah. like, um, you know, a uh, recent fabrication is one of the ones. So if the defense alleges that Explain somebody, that one slowly yeah, so everybody gets it. So if the defense puts into play in, in the trial that a person made up a statement or made up some evidence at a certain point in time, whether it's recent or whether it's like a year ago or whatever, if you state a time period, then the prosecutor can call evidence that the statement was made before that. Yeah, so let's give some context to this. So we deal with historical allegations of sexual assault, sometimes domestic assault, right? So an allegation comes forward 10 years later. So allegedly this happened in 2012. The charges were laid in 2022. We go to trial and there's an allegation of recent fabrication. In other words, that this was made oh, up just Oh, you were in family court, and this is when you decided to make the allegation. Right. That would be an example. And then there are yeah. witnesses who say, you know, called by the prosecution to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm her best friend. I, I, we were all very close back in 2014. She told me about the ongoing abuse, and she was very worried about it and how it impacted the children. That's admissible evidence. Because you because put the Because it rebuts... An accusation of recent fabrication. That's fine. No problem. Fair game. And then you've already mentioned statement against interest. Yeah, which which I'm worrying a bit more than I used to in my life about because the admissions I used to think were done in a much more um, judicious way. When, when evidence was elicited in cases, whether it's a murder case or a sexual assault case or something else, the admissions against interest, meaning the accused statements to a witness or to actually the complainant, or if it's a murder case, it's a deceased, so it can't be the deceased, but to other parties. You know, there's a judicious approach as to what we're seeking to admit into evidence. Eh, not so much these days. I'm seeing certain admissions that are coming in that just seem to be bullshit. You can smell it right away. It's just bullshit. And yet, you know, let's just go. Let's be loosey-goosey about what evidence we're putting in right now, because it all goes to getting rid of these people who are scourged. They're committing sexual assault. It's human trafficking. It's this, it's that, f it. This is just, you know, this is an admission where you can tell. Every, you know, people who are not lawyers can tell when somebody's not telling the truth about what an accused allegedly said. Well, and, and also, um, you know, a prosecutor's witness can take a section of text messaging and take a small snippet that looks like a confession, but then the defense—that's an excellent point. Then the defense has to actually fight to get the actual whole conversation, or to like like we've got a case to show that the relationship between the two of them was such that they would actually say, "I'm sorry," even if they didn't do something. Because they were they were they were brainwashed into thinking that they were always wrong, and this is a guy. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about, and you know, this ties in everything. Yeah. So so it ties in a few concepts here. One. I'm not trying to hide my fatness from Thanksgiving. God, I love Thanksgiving. Um, a loosening up of evidence and admissibility of evidence against accused people. A, a public opinion which is impacting court's decisions. And so, you know, we can have situations where evidence which is admitted is really a popular admission to convict somebody, but in essence is really just rife with problems and, not, and really not relevant. That's that's the problem that I'm seeing 
And that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. And and I, what's concerning about this whole living tree kind of thing where you can just keep expanding and essentially overturning previous decisions from the Supreme Court, because that's like when well, you mentioned that earlier. From, this is a departure from more of a strict adherence to exceptions to hearsay mm -hmm. in this case, because there really was no basis in which to assess its relevance. I agree with the dissent, but I, I, I'm just worried about where we're going with this and how it filters into other cases and how it filters into even things that are admissible where 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 clear it's clear that what an accused is alleged to have said to a witness is bullshit like you can just know it's bullshit it shouldn't be elicited and you raised an excellent point about text messages the crown is not held to the same standard in a sexual assault case about about messages that they seek to admit that an accused said. But if we want to put in context, well, we have to bring this whole application, lay out our defense, and then we're met with the argument to say, well, context doesn't matter anymore. It, the, 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 the cards are being stacked more and more against accused people because I think politically and from a public standpoint, we're in a much more dangerous place than we ever used to be. Well, you know, they and, just, and they, right they, they don't seem to care about wrongful convictions anymore. And I said before, if that's- Who's they? Um, Members of the legal system. <laughs> I, look, I want to be soft. I want to be soft. Judges, on this. no, because well, I'm going to say the Supreme I Court. Don't, we don't endorse that. With all due respect, I don't think judges. The majority of judges that we appear in front of do try very hard to do a good job. I do also believe Supreme Court of Canada wants to do the right thing, but I believe that 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 subconsciously, people, judges are being influenced. I think there's too much pressure. Yeah. Well, what I've said is, and too much political discourse pushing judges in a direction. You're mad at me. Go ahead. Well, something. yeah, because we had Justice McLaughlin, who gave an amazing speech, which we've read out on one of these podcasts, saying, you know, we need to understand the limitations of the legal system. And, you know, wrongful convictions are a very serious issue. And we've designed our system to avoid those. She made a very great, eloquent point. And then, and then she was criticized for being tone deaf by a member of the legal system. That's, you know, and, and, and there's this pressure and I really, it's just my personal opinion that if we don't care about wrongful convictions anymore, then they need to just say it. They need to admit it. Well, I think when they, when they declared that the new regime under Section 278 regarding prior sexual history and documents in the possession of accused, the, the majority of Supreme Court should have said, we don't care. And we've seen Justice Brown as well in the JJ decision say that this is legislation designed to procure wrongful, wrongful convictions, or and, that will. And we now see that there is admission of evidence in murder cases and others that can have a very pernicious effect. So I think we've run long on this. Yeah. But if it's okay with all of you, we're going to come back and revisit this because and it's hopefully. it's evolving and getting f***ing worse. So. And hopefully everybody has a better understanding of hearsay. Yeah, yeah, hopefully we explained it. And you know what? <laughs> if you like what we're saying, please like, subscribe, share. And if you have questions, email us. We get questions. We get comments, which we respond to. And the questions are great. So thank you very much. Yeah. Joe does. Cheers. Yeah, actually, you could just you don't get emails. one or two? You don't read your emails. Mar my wife, Marcy, gets mad at me when I'm responding to these at like one in the morning. Yeah. Honey, why aren't you sleeping? Because somebody said something really important here. On the internet. <laughs> yes, on the internet. Good night, everybody. Cheers. Thank you. All right.